0: All right. Here we go. Quiet! Quiet Hello and welcome to the Big Picture Podcast, where we take a look at the latest movie news, the films of today and yesterday, and try and put it all into some sort of context. Seated across the microphone from me is Film Buff Online contributing editor Natasha Bogutsky.
1: And seated across the microphone from me is Film Buff Online editor in chief Ryan Johnson. Uh, Rich Trees.
0: <laughs> Stop reading my t shirt. <laughs> it's a
1: little difficult. It's in bold white letters saying written and directed by Ryan Johnson. And
0: Yep. Unpaid for plug <laughs> to uh, the fine folks at Super Yaki. Uh, for for this shirt and for a lot of the other t-shirts that they've made that I have... I've bought like two or three different ones. Oh, and... I thought
1: you were going to plug his wife's podcast for a second. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I would think most of our listeners are probably already hip to You Must Remember This podcast.
1: And it's a not I, great... I wasn't hip to it until you told me about it, so...
0: Well, okay.
1: So... We are now over Christmas break. Yes. We are on a holiday, uh, which is fantastic because it now allows us to catch... Who am I kidding? I have to go back to work tomorrow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Same here. Same here.
1: But um, during, usually around this time, streaming services start dropping a lot of IP. A lot of
0: content. A lot of content. (laughs) And I hate to say content because it just sounds like product and we must slavishly get through it all. But there is a lot of good stuff in that mix. and um, There's
1: a huge list to get through before <laughs> the end of the year. And I True. am finding it difficult to juggle all of it. How about you? Um, same here. Ain't same good? here.
0: Um, well, we're going to do our who, review of Wonder Woman 1984 in the second half I was of the say, episode. Who am
1: I kidding? Most of it you've already gotten through over the last couple of weeks.
0: Uh, no, not all of it. Sound of Metal? Yes, fantastic. The prom terrible. Soul Soul is amazing.
1: But at least you've gotten through them. Yes. I haven't touched them yet. <laughs> okay, I tried to I tried to touch uh the prom last night. It lasted 11 minutes and 44 seconds before I shut it off. <laughs> I'm like wow. I can't do this.
0: So so you didn't even get to like really the second song. Oh
1: no i got the, the-
0: well, you you were still in you were still oh, the yeah, scene I in just, Sardis y- yeah I was when in you Sardi. bailed yeah you, you barely got to the high school
1: i couldn't
0: i don't blame couldn't. you it's not good it <laughs> it's frustrating when you see something a movie a musical a, read a book whatever that has themes that you agree with or you know talks about something you like Obviously both you and I agree with the inclusionary themes of uh, you know for the LGBTQ community that's in the prom. It's just it's not well done.
1: And that's a shame because the musical itself was a smash hit on Broadway. Everyone raved about it when it came out. It didn't last long because of course ticket sales Yeah, it's it's no Book of Mormon, but uh, like (laughs) although
0: in the film version we have Andrew Rannells Rannells, who who, was in Book of Mormon, who was in the original cast for Book of Mormon, and one of the few high points of the musical is him (laughs) is him singing a song in a mall. Oh no! To a bunch of the kids who were mean to um you know the the lead high school girl who wanted to go to the prom with her girlfriend. And the song is all about people who pick and choose things out of the Bible. It's a... After this... So so it kind of felt like a little bit of... It, it really just... Maybe they cast him because of the Book of Mormon connection, but it did feel like a... Well, this song could have been in Book of Mormon. It has that same kind of feel.
1: Speaking of Andrew Reynolds, there is another film of his that I have to get through um, that came out this year before the end of the year and I forgot to write it on my list as I was going through it earlier Um, The Boys in the Band
0: Oh, um, I have not seen it.
1: I've heard really good things I've
0: heard good things too Um, so yeah I do need to circle back and of course, Andrew Rannells was also in something else you watched just recently.
1: A simple favor. A simple yeah. favor,
0: and we're back to talking about that. No, um, uh, but let's circle back to uh, the
1: prom. Uh, actually, this seems uh, to be not. the year. or I'm um, sort of okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, this seems to be the year of which plays and musicals are getting adaptations. So you had The Boys in the Band, you had Ma Rainey's, you had The Prom. Like the, there's been quite a bit that has come out this year.
0: You're forgetting Hamilton.
1: Oh, uh, I—I I d- Which was I supposed to be for
0: next year, but they brought I, I it forward. I don't
1: count that because it is technically a recording of the Broadway of the stage show. show. Okay. I don't. Yeah, it, it's like watching. Um, it's the a concert twi- film. Yeah, it's a concert film. It's like watching the 25th anniversary of Phantom of the Opera that they did years ago, which was just a recording from. New York. I don't count that.
0: Okay. You're talking complete filmic cinematic adaptations yes. of stage material. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: And I think that also helps get us through 2020 and the fact that Broadway is shut down. Having these adaptations makes you feel like you're not missing out on everything.
0: It's certainly for people who, who enjoy that form of entertainment. It's it's a nice um, substitute a nice uh, bomb yeah, for missing for right out now, on that. Yeah, yeah. I, I certainly see that. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> one of those movies was The Prom, which ultimately
1: was not good. No. It just wasn't. I, and, I, and I can't even say that apart from the 11 minutes and 44 seconds I watched. <laughs> well, you messaged me,
0: you had texted me and said, "I, I'm bailing on this thing. And you said you didn't even make 12 minutes. I was like, oh, boy. And then I looked and was like, oh, so there's a still a whole two hours beyond that because mm-hmm. it's two hours and 12 minutes. And I was like, uh, well, let me put it on. Let me see how bad it is. I And even on something really bad, I seldom turn off a movie until I watch <laughs> it all the way through because I'm like, eh, there could be something in here. And yeah, OK, an hour and 20 minutes in, we finally get that Andrew Randall song. But yeah, overall, it wasn't good. And there was one thing I saw discussed on Twitter when the film first dropped, or I think when some critics got to see it, and that is James Corden's characterization of a gay man as a straight man acting it. He was kind of a little too flamboyant, and some people thought that that was on the borderline, if not flopped right over into just offensive territory.
1: If it was someone like Mel Brooks doing it, I think it would be more acceptable, but Ryan Murphy was the one who kind of produced this film, and he's accustomed to doing very well characterized uh, LGBTQ characters, like in Hollywood, and Boys in the Band, and even- Glee. Glee, American Horror Story- Mm -hmm. He knows when not to try to offend the audience in which I believe he is a part of. I may be wrong there, but I'm pretty certain on that um so yeah this 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 whole film from what I saw of twelve minutes, it was over stylized to the point of flamboyant. I I could not help myself from laughing at the line that they said to Meryl Streep, which is her performance of Eleanor Roosevelt was like a drag queen shoving a syrup-soaked American flag down your throat. And I was like, oh, that's – That was beautiful.
0: That was beautifully brutal. (laughs) and
1: uh, It sounds like something the New York Times would write. (laughs) It also – that opening harked back. It felt like um, watching the producers.
0: A little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because my memory of the that street was a little fuzzy. I did go on Google Maps. And I know exactly where it is. Yeah, and said, okay, is that theater that they're using as a front really across the street from Sardis? And yes, so I don't know if they actually shot on the street in New York. Or if they shot on a back lock and then digitally extended the set. Either way, if you care about such a thing in a bad movie, the location recreation was extraordinarily accurate.
1: Yeah. No. My- I, minus, broad-
0: like, all the scaffolding for buildings and stuff that you yeah. often see there. I
1: saw the Broadhurst and across the street was the music box. And it, so, yeah, I was – I. I Walked uh-huh. down that street many times. I've been in the Broadhurst a couple times for shows. I uh, yeah. I think the yes. only thing that
0: looked <laughs> off was there was a partially obscured sign, and probably partially obscured for copyright reasons, for Wicked. Because you could see yeah. like the far left and the far right of the sign. <laughs> and you and I just looked at it and go, That's Wicked. But Wicked is not in that theater. Wicked's I think a couple of streets up.
1: I would have actually and I may be
0: wrong, but I, I, I saw have Wicked ago. i to go what, 14, back and pause
1: ago. it because I'm curious. I could have swore I actually saw, and might just be my brain playing tricks on me, a sign for the boys in the band. It, like in the background somewhere, <laughs> and it was on Broadway a year or two ago with Jim Parsons and Reynolds, Matt Bomer. Mm-hmm. I and I remember seeing like the big billboard for it as I was walking down the street. And when Ryan Murphy did the adaptation, he brought all of them back to do the film. So that might be a nice little plug for another <laughs> one that he's done mm-hmm. uh recently. But no, I actually, I, I, just, I just couldn't do it. I. Maybe it was the fact that I wasn't feeling well yesterday after stuffing myself full of all of that uh, <laughs> Christmas food the night before. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just wanted to bleh yesterday and just, you know, lay on the sofa and become one with the cushions. And the prom was just not helping me through a happy place uh, um, or well. helping me reach one. So I switched over to Bridgerton.
0: I was going to say, if you had more serotonin going for you or whatever, yeah, um, <laughs> uh, you know, if your blood was coursing with dopamine, it, it still wasn't going to help you enjoy the prom. It's just not good. Yeah. It, which is, again, a shame. And uh, you- some great talent in there, and James Corden's also in it. And-, <laughs> and you
1: and I both know that I am a fan of when I am down, I watch something that is truly depressing because it forces me to come to term with those emotions and gives me a sense of catharsis on mm-hmm. the other end and it and, brings me out of it
0: and there's parts where i'm like oh my god carrie washington's character here is the worst person in public education since dolores umbridge <laughs> and you know she she actively made me mad she actively made me like i want to drive to this fictional town in indiana and punched us broad in the face um but then again it was like these were broad caricatures of like this is america and we have our values here and it, it was just th- there wasn't a whole lot of depth to her character ultimately
1: the worst part is is i was dreaming about the prom last night
0: <laughs> your prom or the no m- the mo- movie oh so a nightmare then
1: yes it was i'm sorry but, um, and then I can actually circle back around to what I was saying with Carrie Washington because she was also in a Shonda Rhimes show. Okay. Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> scandal. I shut off The Prom on Netflix and I turned on Bridgerton, the new Shonda Rhimes show that just dropped onto Netflix. How'd you like it? Loved it. It was, it's so different from any other Shonda Rhimes show I've ever watched. I only lasted seven or eight seasons of Grey's Anatomy. I lasted three episodes of Scandal. And I lasted, I think, one and a half episodes of How to Get Away with Murder. For me, Shonda Rhimes' uh, shows on ABC have always been fantastic cast. Great themes of inclusion and integration and just you know th- those are great but they rely so much on the drama because you have a 22 episode season every year that you're filling what doesn't need to be filled mm-hmm. just to 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 make your limit and it reaches over into soap opera territory
0: fair enough i mean looking at traditional broadcasting in mm-hmm. the us series you know would run 22 23 25 episodes sometimes like back in the 60s 70s and even into the 80s but they were also so very episodic with no like long term character growth. You didn't need that you know character growth happened with supporting characters and guest stars who were there for an episode and then out. The characters always remained the same, so that wasn't a problem that you could do all of these episodes. You could show them out of production order. none of that mattered because the reset button was hit at the end of every episode
1: now that's that's how those shows are yeah, from what i I well, oh, definitely, with Grey's Anatomy.
0: Grey's Anatomy is
1: was episodic,
0: very episodic. Okay, not yeah. a whole lot of continuing storylines or anything.
1: It had some overlapping continuing storylines, like okay, whether or not uh, Meredith Grey was going to end up with McSteamy or McDreamy would be like <laughs> your season, you know, arc. Mm-hmm. Um, but every episode, it was it was a new drama happening or like, house, like, bringing in someone with, you know, one disease or this, or this accident or whatever, when it started getting to the point that, oh, we have a shooter coming into the hospital killing off people left and right, including Patrick Dempsey's character, and then a few seasons, and when I say few, I mean maybe about six or seven seasons later, deciding, oh, we're going to do a plane crash and kill Meredith's sister and, um, Oh, God, Eric, Eric <laughs> Dane's character of McSteamy. And it's just like, I was just like, I'm out. I can't, I can't do any more of this bullshit. I don't turn on primetime television to get General Hospital and Days of Our Lives. I'm sorry. Fair enough. Like, there's a reason why those are in the daytime.
0: Um, I mean, you have dramatic arcs and things like that, too. Unlike British Fair, And it seems like Bridgerton is, you know, or excuse me. British, uh, British TV or a lot of, um, you know, streaming services now. They're only ordering like eight, ten episode arcs for a season of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that it looks like it gives a more concentrated time to tell your story so you don't have to do a lot of that bullshit fuller.
1: I love that. And that's one of the reasons why I stick to shows now that are between eight to thir- 13 episodes, mm-hmm. whether that be something on – uh, BBC, um, A and E, uh, like B- Bates Motel, used to be around, I think, thirteen episodes. Um, Doctor Who is usually based around thirteen at this point. Um, and then you go to things on HBO, Showtime, it's somewhere between ten to thirteen. Oh yeah, and yeah, the concentrated time taking out the filler episodes really does help, not just tell your story but it gets rid of like the whole I, I i think about it in terms of monster of the week that allows you to focus on your characters mm-hmm. and at the end of the day when you're on a, a show as an actor if you're focused on your monster or drama of the week you can't focus on what is really important and finding that balance between the two is very difficult Buffy was a great example of how you balance those two. Oh, yeah,
0: definitely. X-Files did it also fairly well. Um, there were some se- seasons that they were better at it than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, one season show that ran actually concurrently with uh, the first season of X-Files on Fox was the Bruce Campbell series, The Adventures of Briscoe County. And that had that at first seemed very episodic. And then it's, you slowly built up this mythology that – Became an overall story arc for Mm -hmm. the whole season. Yeah. uh, Involving, you know, an outlaw who always seems to get away. And then you realize that's because he's from the future. Halfway through the series, Briscoe County took a weird science fiction bend. And it was a lot of fun, though.
1: Doctor Who is one of those shows, at least since its return in 2005, that Mm -hmm. is. Very good at balancing Monster of the Week and long ter- uh, long-term uh, story arc uh, where they will – you yeah, you have to deal with your Dalek in one episode, your Cybermen, your Weeping Angel, but through and through. And also setting up something that is not just for a season, but it could be for the entire term of a Doctor's Regeneration, Matt Smith the 13th doctor under Stephen Moffat set up a, what was known as the crack in the wall in his very first episode. Mm -hmm. And it lasted for the first season and then disappeared. And then it showed back up in his final episode two and a half years later and became a very important part of that episode's story and how Matt Smith finished off his term as the doctor. Oh, true.
0: And that that's because that was um Stephen Moffat at that point was show running, right? Yeah. Yeah. He had he had that all planned out.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I sometimes think most showrunners plan a year, maybe two in advance and that's it. You know, they'll know kind of what's going on and they'll know and have a vague idea for what they want in the season following that they can maybe start putting a couple little pieces of story and plot and things like that in place. In the previous season, and that's it. Though I know Joss Whedon was famous for knowing what he was probably going to be doing two seasons down the road.
1: I uh, I appreciate it when showrunners plan things out. Uh, mm-hmm. Bates Motel was famous for when you would interview the showrunners at the beginning of the season, uh, at the beginning of the first season, saying, "This is where we are going. We are having five seasons, and then it's ending." Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's not that we are going to be canceled. We are going to end it at that point if we make it that long.
0: Back back in the 1990s, that's how uh, Joe Straczynski pitched Babylon 5 to all the studios and the networks. He's like, this is a show. It's we have a plan. Here's the story arc. It's going to go five years. And people were like, well, what if you get canceled after 13 episodes? And he was like, what if we don't? And then then they were like, OK. And then they're like, well, no one wants to see, you know, big you know, outer space science fiction on TV. It's expensive and there's Star Trek, so why would anybody do anything else? And finally, it took Warner (laughs) Brothers, you know, to gamble on it. And it turned into a show that had that five-year story arc. Things were planted in those first 13 episodes that kind of paid off throughout those years. There was a lot of stuff that paid off, you know, and I've rewatched the entire series four or five times now over the years. And the amount of preparation and payoff is amazing in that show, mm-hmm. and that's what kind of changed a lot of people. That uh, the mainstream, the more mainstream success of X Files, kind of helped usher in shows that have those long running story arcs and things like that, like Lost. And uh, I can't think of anything else right now, but you know, because there's so many to even try to weed your way through to find a good example. Yeah, but a lot of those shows also suffer that issue of. We have too much to fill, so we have to have Monsters of the Week. We have to have Problem of the Week. We have to have the soap opera drama. We have to have kind of a teen romance drama and stuff like that. But to get back to your point on Bridgerton, because it's a shorter season, it's what, eight episodes? Eight episodes. Eight episodes. Boom. You're in. You're out. You've told your story over eight hours.
1: The actual storyline is – you, it takes place in the Regency era, in England, um, in an integrated society. The Queen Charlotte is um, African.
0: Mm-hmm. It,
1: it, it's really interesting to see just how people, unlike other period dramas that you've watched, just don't care about race. And I, I love that idea. Uh, uh,
0: that kind of colorblind casting?
1: No, no. They actually talk about it at one point that oh. uh, we weren't allowed into this society until the mm-hmm. king fell in love with one of us. And then all of a sudden, all we could all be raised out of our current standing and oh, okay. be made dukes, be made this and that. We were accepted into this society.
0: Okay. I, th- I thought you were talking more along the lines of like the colorblind casting of um, the recent uh, David Copperfield film adaptation with dev patel in the lead no obviously not the type of person that dickens probably would have cast in the (laughs) and let's just face it because of you know the innate racism and prejudices of the 19th century when dickens was alive
1: no they they explained it it almost Mm -hmm. felt like an alternate reality uh you know where i'm going with this Yes. okay um (laughs) But at the exact same time, feeling very authentic to the time period. The idea is it is the start of the season. The debutantes are being presented to the Queen and they have until the end of spring to try to make a suitable match for a marriage. And one girl who is brought before the Queen and is praised as a diamond amongst all the girls cannot seem to make a match with anyone She bumps into someone, uh, the Duke of Hastings, and they hate each other. He's being hounded because he apparently is the most eligible bachelor, and he has vowed that he will never marry and never sire children. A choice that actually a lot of us millennials and <laughs> Gen Zs are are making right now based and off of our current standing.
0: And a few of us Gen Xers have made, too. Uh, okay. Um.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Um, but I, that was a very interesting idea. And she wants to be married and he does not. So they decide to create a ruse and pretend to fall madly in love with each other. And that way... Every eligible, you know, young lady and their mothers will leave him alone and she will become more desirable to other suitors in society Mm -hmm. and therefore securing a position for her to try to find a better match.
0: This sounds very much like a comedy of manners.
1: It is. And it's very kind of Pride and Prejudice-y at the beginning. But one of the things I enjoyed about it is unlike with... Jane Austen of they barely talk and then all of a sudden things situation makes them change their feelings about each other this is a long-term growth so they have the chance to pretend to be in love but whilst doing their act they form a friendship and and seeing like the little inside jokes that they have with each other like they'll be standing in a room and this guy comes in and she's um her her name is Daphne and says to the duke, oh, oh, look at this girl. Yeah, she's going to look down at the ground and then look at him slowly and place her fan over her chest as if she's being so demure. And then he looks at her and goes, yeah, she's, he's telling her how lovely her dress looks. And this guy comes over to Daphne. And the duke walks away and says, yo, you look ravishing in that dress. And she starts laughing and snorting in front of him. (laughs) And the duke looks over at her and then she excuses herself, walks over to him and says, why did you do that to me? (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's those little Mm -hmm. pieces of character development that makes the end result feel more authentic.
0: Okay. It sounds like they aren't quite as stuffy as one would expect a comedy or a a story that's satirizing or at least being critical of the social mores of the time.
1: And there are definitely moments where it is very authentic to those social mores of, you know, we judge. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And Daphne was one of the first ones to say, do not judge lest we be judged. And I, I really love that she kind of threw that in her own peers face Because, yeah, it shows that she has a bigger heart than others in that society. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I did notice is Julie Andrews, the great, ever great Julie Andrews, Mm -hmm. does the voice of Lady Whistledown, who writes a scandalous paper exposing everyone's little secrets for society and is the one that claimed that Daphne was ineligible in the first place. The way that that is set up is that's a mystery of who is she throughout the entire arc. Mm -hmm. Julie Andrews never shows up. She's just the voice. Oh, cool. And in that way, I can compare this to Gossip Girl. (laughs) Except this feels more for women, Mm -hmm. whereas Gossip Girl is set more for teenagers. Um. Yeah, because during Gossip Girl, Kristen Bell played, was the voice of Gigi, and at the end of the series, we find out who the actual person was, and it turned out to be a man. We do find out who this is at the end of it, but it was the comparison between those two shows that I found very interesting. I will
0: need to check that out at some point.
1: Yeah, that, I know I that, that'll be six years from now when the show is finally over. Is it only one season or is, is it
0: designed for more?
1: Um, I have a feeling it's designed for more. We are definitely going to see more of this show. But currently, right now, it's only eight episodes on Netflix. Dropped, I believe, two days ago. So go and check that out if you're feeling in the mood.
0: And that's just one of many things that have dropped this week and this weekend of Christmas. And we're going to get to one of the biggest titles in just a few moments as we review Wonder Woman 1984 next. Stay tuned. In 1941, a brand new superheroine first appeared on newsstands. A warrior princess hailing from a magical hidden island of Amazons, she was known as Wonder Woman. The creation of psychologist and sometimes writer William Moulton Marston, Wonder Woman, a.k.a. Princess Diana of Themyscira, a.k.a. Diana Prince, was in part created to give young girls reading comic books their own hero in the vein of Superman to look up to. For more information on some of the other inspirations and impetuses for creating the character, we do suggest checking out the 2017 film, Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. The character was an instant hit, and very soon, Wonder Woman was considered one of the big three in the DC Comics pantheon, sharing that spotlight with both Superman and Batman. But despite that high visibility, it took Wonder Woman 75 years to reach the big screen, appearing alongside Batman and Superman in Zack Snyder's 2016 film, Batman v. Superman, Dawn of Justice. Now, we should note that we are not overlooking the classic Wonder Woman TV series starring Linda Carter, which ran for three seasons in the 1970s, but in terms of silver screen live-action representation, Diana has lagged far behind her two contemporaries. But Godot's incarnation of the character was certainly making up for lost time. Critics and fans agreed that her work as the Amazonian princess was one of the highlights of the film, even if everyone seems split in their opinions about everything else in Batman v Superman. A solo original film followed a year later, detailing Diana's initial journey to man's world and how she helped fight and defeat Ares, the god of war, who had instigated World War I for his own ambitions and power. The film was a smash success, with many pointing to a sequence now just referred to as the No Man's Land scene as a high point not just of the film, but for the superhero film genre itself. Fast forward to the present, where Wonder Woman's sequel, Wonder Woman 1984, is now arriving in theaters and on streaming via HBO Max. The story's time frame has moved forward seven decades and finds Diana in her secret identity working for the Smithsonian when she and her colleague, Barbara Minerva, played by Kristen Wiig, discover a magical artifact that can grant wishes. Of course, it becomes the object of desire of the media-savvy Donald Trumpish Maxwell Lord, played by Pablo Pascal. And once he gets his hand on it, that's when the trouble starts. So Natasha.
1: Yes. Yeah?
0: Did you find Wonder Woman 1984 a worthy successor to the original film? Or is it a dud on the level of fanny packs? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that? Seriously? <laughs> wow. <laughs> there's there's no in between there. It has to be <laughs> one or the other. <laughs> or maybe somewhere in between them. I don't know.
1: Um, first off, I use a fanny pack when I'm hiking, sling it over my shoulder.
0: Okay. Well, um. Not a fanny pack then, is it?
1: No, it's still a fanny pack. I just use it a little different. Um, I actually thought this was better than the first.
0: Well, you're going to have to explain yourself because I <laughs> certainly did not. Now, I know I have, you know, posted my review and it Which was... I didn't read. That's Okay. Won't take that too personally.
1: You had the uh, chance to see it early, and I didn't want to be spilled because I was watching it with my family.
0: That's fine. That's perfectly understandable. Yeah. I'm just teasing. I was kind of mixed to slightly negative on it. Our good friend and uh, Film Buff Online comic book film editor, actually, Bill Gattavaskis, liked it a whole lot more than I did. And he wrote a Counterpoint review, which you can also read on the site, where he praised things that I didn't like and so forth. But that's fine. Why, though? What did you like about it?
1: You mean, why do I think it's better? Yes. The first film never felt like a Wonder Woman movie to me. It felt like... Really? It felt like a team film takes on the war, like The Dirty Dozen or, or you know, other things like that. It felt like a more of a war movie than it felt like a Wonder Woman movie. Now...
0: Interesting. Wait,
1: wait, wait. wait. No, no, no.
0: Keep going. Keep going. I'm just...
1: This film does not have a scene on par with No Man's Land.
0: No, it does not.
1: No. No Man's Land is iconic, and there is probably nothing that will be able to replace it. Mm -hmm. But this felt more like a Wonder Woman movie. Um, The first film was she had a team backing her up. She had Steve. She had the other group. She had Effie in London. She had her mother and her aunt on Themyscira. Um, Then in Justice League and Batman v Superman, she had people by her side working with her in the firefight. She knows how to work as a team. This film was not about that. It was about trusting that she was good enough by herself. She could trust the rest of the world, or at least try to trust the rest of the world to make the right decision, but at the end of the day, there is no one standing next to her. True. And so, for me, that makes it more of a Wonder Woman movie, is that she's proving, I can work with others. Can I work by myself? Can I be enough to save this world? Mm -hmm. And honestly, though,
0: we're seven decades From where we last saw the character. Mm -hmm. I would have thought we would have had some of that happen already for her in that time. That she would have lived, yeah, especially going through World War II and then everything else. That she at some point would have kind of figured out that she can be on her own. And work as, you know, a solo person. And I think we do see that for the most part in her personal life she is. She, you know, she's very comfortable with being alone and outside of a relationship because she still misses Steve. Steve was the great love of her life. And that's an area I wish they had explored more, actually. The loneliness, um, the heartbreak that she was still carrying seven decades later. She gets like one line to explain it away. No, you don't understand how it was for me.
1: I, and I disagree it. with you. Her goodbye sequence with Steve in this film.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess, I guess if you're listening, we're gonna begin spoilers. But it's not much of a spoiler that Steve came back because it's all over the. Trailers. It's in the trailers. Yeah,
1: her goodbye with Steve in this film is proof of that. That's all you needed to kind of show I don't want to go back to that loneliness, to feeling like that again, mm-hmm. and the sacrifice that she has to make at that point. In the first Wonder Woman, it wasn't a choice that she had to make. Steve made that choice for her. Um, And so does she know how to sacrifice or is everyone else's choices who end up, you know, that end up getting them killed actually any fault of hers? Mm-hmm. And so here she had to make the difficult choice. One life, the life that you love the most over the entire world. Mm-hmm. Like I said, this felt more like a Wonder Woman movie because you have to come to terms with the darkest parts of what our choices do to us as people. True. And are we, do we have our own internal strength to rise up above that?
0: Mm-hmm. I think, though, that because Max Lord, played by Pedro Pascal, was.
1: Wonderfully, by the way. Had- Holy shit, he was good in this.
0: We're going to circle back to that um, because he had that ability to grant other people's wishes. Every single person we saw getting a wish granted was a selfish wish. They wanted something for themselves. And I don't think ultimately people are like that. I think there are enough people out there that would have asked for something selfless like I want my parents to have a healthy long life or you know something like that. And the fact that everybody seemed venal, all of humanity was venal. We only saw these kind of selfish, I need this, I want this, I want more of that. I want, I want, I want, I want, I wish I want to, I want. Kind of was stacking the deck a little bit
1: towards the ending. Yes and no. Um, I I like the idea of that because it's true. I I think it's absolutely true that – Yes, we we would wish for, you know, to world peace or cure, you know, world hunger or I want my parents to live a long and prosperous life. But that is not the first thing that your brain is going to jump to. And I like the idea that he's rushing them to make a choice that they don't have a chance to really think about. They just say that the first thing that pops out of their head because he's rushing them to just say something and that seems what it is it's just like what is it that you desire what what is it what do you want the universe to give to you like wish for wish for this w- wish for something I mean, and it, he's he's forcing them to quickly say whatever is the first thing that comes to their mind whether it is not the most important thing that they want
0: i mean setting it in the 1980s is probably a good
1: capitalism yeah, and
0: a good that, yeah. ch- choice for setting because you know Gordon Gecko told us then that greed is good. So that was very much part of the cultural zeitgeist at the time. Yeah. And I thought when, she, when Max Lord goes to the president and it's not Reagan,
1: uh-huh.
0: I thought that was a bit of a cop-out. Because, let's face it, I, Reagan's America was nothing ab- but it being about greed and cocaine.
1: I actually was looking at him going, is that supposed to be Reagan? Because yeah, I the, don't even feel like it is. They,
0: if it was supposed to be Reagan, they didn't try at all. It's like, okay, that guy kind of has ruddy cheeks. Yeah, let him play Reagan. I just didn't read that as Reagan.
1: I do need to say, though, that the savior of this film is Kristen Wiig. Oh, she's fantastic. This is the best thing I've seen her do.
0: It's probably the best dramatic work I've seen her do since um, the Skeleton Twins.
1: I haven't seen the Skeleton Twins, so okay. Well, I,
0: we're, worth tracking down. It Barely got released, but
1: when she was first cast as Cheetah, I saw the announcement and I went, "What the fuck?" I know <laughs> you remember my reaction. Yeah, I was I just think like, you messaged me, I like, like huh? "What? No, why? Why? No? Come on!" I mean, I've seen her do comedy. I've seen her do mm-hmm. action comedy. I've never seen her do something to th- and she gets to exercise her comedy chops. Yeah, she plays the
0: the bumbly, socially awkward person at first.
1: But only for like the first six minutes she's mm-hmm. on screen. And then all of a sudden And once she, she has
0: that that dinner with Diana, yeah. you start to see there's layers underneath there and she's and she's putting in the work.
1: Oh, she's definitely putting and in the
0: work. It, she's fantastic. I really liked her.
1: I I remember in the trailer when she walked in in the black dress up the stairs, and I remember watching the trailer going, huh. <laughs> like there was just something about her that jumped off the screen at that moment.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And then you watch the actual events of her going through this change in the film. Holy shit, she is the <laughs> best part of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, like. I need to give Kristen Wiig a lot more credit because she blew me away in this movie. Yes.
0: I will agree with you on that point.
1: Now, you said Pedro Pascal. I thought (laughs) he
0: was a too cartoony he was kind of big and i understand that yes he's a media personality in the 80s and he's supposed to kind of like have hammy hammy hey life is good but it can be better
1: and i love that they utilize that at the beginning mm -hmm. because well
0: that sets up the idea of everybody's greedy
1: well not just everybody's greedy but it it everybody wants more Wrong.
0: You're not happy with what you have.
1: Wrong. I saw uh, it is this is how people are going to know who I am. So every person I meet, they're they're going to look at me and go, who are you? Max Lord. I'm, I'm sorry, who? And that's why he has to constantly remind people of that.
0: With his catchphrase. Yeah. But the idea of that catchphrase, though, I think sets up a lot of thematical things about yeah. greed in the, in the show. Mm. To choose an 80s example – if somebody saw Clara Peller just, mm-hmm. like, out in the wild at the mall or something like that, they'd go, I know her from somewhere. And then they, she'd have to go, where's the beef? And they go, oh, my God, it's the where's the beef lady.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I think his best scenes were with his son, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was hard not to make any Mandalorian uh, – connections there
0: <laughs> yeah that that's a weird it was a bad week for uh, Pedro Pascal and, <laughs> and uh, offspring <laughs>
1: um but there was definitely a couple of moments where I was looking at him going I know what he's trying to do here there could, probably could have been a better way for them to write this but he is doing what he can with what he's given and he's doing it well mm-hmm to be honest, I had a Wonder Woman comic, like, a little paperback book when I was a kid um, from, like, the 1940s. Okay. Very old serial paperback mm-hmm. comic books. And it was one of the things in the first film I was very annoyed that we never got to see, the invisible airplane. <laughs> and I cried through that scene in here. It's
0: beautifully done. Mm-hmm. I, you know, as they fly through the um, the fireworks and everything, it's like one of the few times I've ever liked fireworks because I think, you know, dragging me off to a field to watch that crap and, you know, on the 4th of July is just boring. But that's me. And loud. And boring and loud. And I'm like, I could be reading a book or something. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, if you like fireworks, more power to you. But. That was one of the few times I'm like, oh, wow, this is great. You know, fly through the fireworks. It's something probably people have always thought about. And some people are just too afraid to fly their expensive drones up into a fireworks display to see- show us. <laughs> so I appreciated that. The fact that she just kind of was like, well, let's see, Zeus made a whole island. The The manner that they got to getting the plane invisible mm-hmm. was a little, eh, I don't know. You're just pulling – you're pulling stuff out of a hat and just saying, "Yeah, it's a superhero movie. Who cares?"
1: No, he wasn't. She talking about how Zeus made Themyscira invisible to the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, so she's gonna try to make it. You know, I'm gonna try to do this magic thing too, because I'm his
1: daughter. And it, she's had 70 years to work on it, though. Yeah, true. And but she's not doing it to the extent of him. I do like we, that. She's like, I tried it on a mug and then I lost it. And I was just like, yeah, yeah that's a joke.
0: Cute joke. Cute but, joke,
1: but probably true experience, because you, when you start, you're always going to start on something small.
0: True. But to go from a coffee mug to the jet. And she said, what, I did this 10 years ago. That seems like an awfully convenient time and also it's a power that never comes back anymore
1: that we gu- it's
0: it's a checkoff's gun for the movie that doesn't get fired in the third act i
1: think no it doesn't come back for the rest of the movie and i'm okay mm-hmm. with that and yeah and we haven't seen it in justice league or anything like that but we may see it in the future and that was something that was brought up about the armor is my um uh, when i was talking to my husband and my stepson after the movie they're like Oh, Asteria's armor. Why is it, it, it that it's in this film, but we never see it in any of the others? Like, at the, that's the problem with going back in time and, and doing mm-hmm. a film that takes place before all of this, is now you're setting up problems that don't show up in the others. And I said, Well, the next film in the storyline that we already have that she shows up in is Batman v Superman. A lot of happens in the time between. We could have another Wonder Woman movie, maybe ten, fifteen years from now, like maybe right around
0: nineteen ninety
1: nine. Ninety nine.
0: You play off a of millennial ending fears and stuff like that. Or be fun.
1: or World Trade Center time. Ooh. That yeah, that would be a little. Eh, but at the exact same time. We were introduced to Linda Carter as Asteria at the end. Now, that might have just been a nice little tidbit of, hey, here's some fan service. Here's Linda Carter. Yeah. Or
0: Because some people were upset that she wasn't like one of the Amazons on Themyscira in no. the first film.
1: But if, say, they bring her in, even if it's just for five minutes in another Wonder Woman film in the future, that could be a nice little way of saying... This belongs to you and hands it off. And there completes that gap of saying, okay, I don't have that for the other movies.
0: True. Arguably, for the two future times we see her, which is Batman v Superman and Justice League, Mm -hmm. she either A, well, in Batman v Superman, she's just on the plane getting ready to leave town and is like, nah, I better go back and help with this. And she gets off and just goes. So she doesn't have time to go collect the armor or anything like that, if she still is in possession of it. Justice League could be just a situation where she's like, you know what, I don't need to wear it for this. Or I don't have time to go back to get it again. Yeah, There's that too. That's always an option.
1: I, just, now, I really enjoyed the fact that this movie was about her. Her journey. Not about everyone else around her who needed to have her back. Mm-hmm. She has the At that attitude of, I am strong, I am powerful, and I don't need anyone else. Mm -hmm. It's good to have them there. But I'm so used to having that support system around me that what do I do when it's not there? Like, can I be enough? Mm -hmm. Okay. And, And losing Steve, I think shattered her a bit. Like I can I can take care of the little robberies at the mall and I I may be able to to do this little tiny thing over here, but I don't think she ever really recovered until she realized I have to make this choice. One life versus the world in in Spock terms.
0: Okay. Yeah, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Exactly. Okay. Well, let me ask you this though. Concerning Steve's return. Mm -hmm. Basically, we had Steve magically taken out of, presumably, some form of heaven, Mm -hmm. and his soul stuck into a random dude's body that the random dude had no say in it whatsoever. And...
1: I know where you're going with this. (laughs)
0: Because this has been brought up, uh, and I've seen this in discourse on Twitter and such. At what point does the fact that random dude who had no say in the matter whatsoever.
1: Not be raped? Yes,
0: not be <laughs> raped, basically. <laughs> because if this was reversed, if this was a guy who wished a female lover back and she was inhabiting the body, uh, her spirit was inhabiting the body of another woman, everybody would automatically go, "Oh, yikes, no. <laughs> but is, I... but I, I feel the same way. Standard applies it's the, here, though. It, yeah. yeah no, it's, I'm right. like, Ooh. I mean, at the end, she does meet random guy at the Christmas decorations and everything at the Christmas display outside.
1: I was and expecting one of them to ask each other out.
0: <laughs> I know, but he didn't. And I have to wonder, is he kind of because he had- Self-aware? Ha- no, not self-aware. Were they trying to code him as gay? What makes you think that? I'm not sure. I for a, For a brief moment, I'm like- Wait a minute are they trying to say he's not interested because he might be gay I, I you know I don't want to say because he kind of dressed with the big scarf and everything else It's
1: eighties come on yeah
0: I, 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 I don't want to oh. I don't want to make that assumption outside but of the, the early two
1: thousands it was the most fashion faux pas era that there was
0: have you heard of the seventies
1: okay good point I saw some
0: I saw something online the other day that made me laugh. The reason there was so much um, uh, free love and um, casual sex in the 1970s was because everybody just wanted to get out of those clothes. (laughs) That's a great joke. Come on. (laughs) But, But then again, I could just be misinterpreting that, though it it was just a brief momentary wait are they saying this guy's gay or not it was kind of like a brief thought and i wanted to see if you had that as well i did not have that thought. okay then maybe then maybe it was just a random possibility that i just that we can just discard then
1: yeah i i did not see it in that way um as for the inhabiting of someone else's body from a physical standpoint it makes the most amount of sense but it does still seem kind of eh
0: mhm
1: at least in today's day and age it kind of seems eh
0: yeah i mean when
1: but when they the- did
0: it on quantum leap yeah if- okay but but then again and i watched the whole series and i probably missed maybe a couple of episodes along the way mm-hmm. but on that show they kind of kept sam from having sex along the way with one exception because He winds up sleeping with one woman, and then the resultant daughter shows up later on and I think like a season down the road or something like that. So even then, you know, it was a man basically inhabiting like another person's body.
1: What is the difference between doing that and utilizing reincarnation in a film?
0: Usually reincarnation involves the person being reincarnated, having their own... Body that's unique to them. Not taking over somebody else's body.
1: Yes and no. Well. Um, think about Mummy Returns. Okay. Yes, we had the actresses playing both their Egyptian spirits mm-hmm. and their current day-to-day bodies. So say Anak Sunamun was playing, oh God, I can't remember her name. And then you had Nefertiri, Rachel Weiss is also playing Evelyn O'Connell. But when Anaxunamun becomes her modern day character, like the actual spirit goes back into her modern body, Mm -hmm. does one part go away? Do they become one? Or is it just all Anaxunamun taking over? That's a
0: good question, because they don't address that in the movie.
1: No film I've ever seen addresses that.
0: Uh, Here, though, they do. They basically say... You know, because, A, they pull the Quantum Leap mirror trick where he looks into a mirror and sees the other guy staring back at him. And that's probably why I'm thinking about Quantum Leap anyways. So they are very much indicating that Steve's spirit is inhabiting this guy's body. Uh, from Right from the beginning where he approaches Diana at that party and she at first only sees the guy. And then once she becomes aware that Steve's spirit is in there, then they switch to Chris Pine. And it's kind of implied that she continues to see the guy. But for storytelling purposes, and because Chris Pine is a name, they have him <laughs> in the movie.
1: It did, well, yes, Chris Pine is the name, and of course they're going to have him. Uh, but they also pulled the Doctor Who Last Christmas section, where do you, older Clara is sitting right in front of him. And it is assumed that he's seeing Clara as an older lady. But in his mind, all he sees is the young one. Yes. So we see her without the makeup for the majority of it, even though it's already showed that she is mm-hmm. aged. And uh, and so I think they were kind of pulling that as well.
0: Yeah, there's there's a tradition of doing that.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of um, films that I think we could pull the whole, you know, this spirit goes into this body, but are they, are two souls inhabiting one or does one come in and take it over completely? Um, how- it,
0: it's, they implied this way at least that it was Steve took over the soul. Uh, S- Steve's soul took over the body completely, and random guy's soul went into a box in the back of the brain, or <laughs> if it was pushed out and went off to hang out in heaven for a short while. So the count remains the, the remains the same up in heaven. No, they don't explain that. They just. Basically, saying Steve took over this body and then went out and fucked with it. Literally. And that could be seen as non consensual.
1: Well, then you need to take a look at all the other films that have come before this that have used that same idea, whether it had been, you know, Dark Shadows with the regeneration idea of. Josette becoming Victoria, mm-hmm. or um, in the haunted mansion, how Mister um, Grayson's of Elizabeth had become Eddie Murphy's wife reincarnated, or Mummy mm-hmm. Returns where Nefertari and all the- like. Th- I, I, I think
0: there's differences though between reincarnation, which, like I said, is just like the soul being born into a new body a century later, versus. A soul actively coming into a body and pushing out the other one. I it's,
1: don't see a difference. One is
0: one is oh, I'm moving back into this house I grew up in, and now it's di- it might be different a little bit, but I'm still living in this house because I, you know, because whatever. Versus, I am so walking l- into this house and kicking the old the other people out.
1: <laughs> so you're looking at reincarnation almost like regeneration,
0: in a way, <laughs> in a way, but it's not the same. Body, it's a new body because they have new parents who fucked and you know she gave birth naturally but I, I and everything. Mean,
1: a different body, same soul, yes. Okay, versus two different souls inhabiting
0: one host or one soul coming in and kicking out the oh, other. Oh
1: boy, you and I could, uh, you and I could have a field day on this one, like for example, the actual film, The Host.
0: Oh, mm hmm. <laughs> that. Not the Bong
1: Soon Ho one, but. Uh, no, 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 no. The one with Searsha Ronan that was absolute shit because it's mm-hmm. written by Stephanie Meyer. However. <laughs> but at the exact same time, I think for a consensual argument, I might need to go back and revisit that because I think that might be the closest comparison that I'm thinking mm-hmm. of off the top of my head the, to Wonder Woman 1984.
0: Yeah, there's more, I think, there to dig into. Um, about that, then I think we have time today. Yeah. Uh, but it is something to you know th- to think about, and I know we don't have time today to dig into <laughs> some of the um, some of the horrible politics of this movie, including the uh, I'm going to drive the unbelievers out of my land, which w- which a lot of people have seen as very anti-Arab and very anti-Palestinian. There's some nonsense involving once once that wall goes up and Iran and Iraq start to gear up and get mad at each other. Uh, I think they say like Russia sides with Iran, which I'm trying to remember uh whichever's s- correct. Which yeah, it's not. In in real world politics they sided with I can't remember who they sided with, but the movie picks the wrong one versus real world politics and you know there's a lot of things in this movie that which
1: is interesting considering Wonder Woman's played by an Israeli actress
0: well that's another thing that's <laughs> pissing people off the anti-arab anti-palestinian vibe to this just feels further insulting because of Gal Gadot's background in the Israeli military mm-hmm. but that's a whole discussion for a whole nother day
1: i do have to ask okay. really quickly mm-hmm. Next up for Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot is a new adaptation of Cleopatra. Mm -hmm. Gal has been getting a lot of crap online because they don't think she's dark enough to play Cleopatra. I have a beef to pick with that. Okay. She's Israeli. She's perfect. olive tone skin, just perfect for that That area of the world. And I think people are mistaking the fact that Cleopatra is actually not Egyptian. She's Greek. Uh-huh. Her lineage came from Greece. And then she married within her family, Ptolemy, and you know all that to keep the bloodline pure. She wouldn't have darker skin.
0: Most likely. Most likely. And that actually, I saw a little bit of that controversy when it popped up when they first announced the project a while back. Honestly, I'm thinking that if that project were to go, it's going to be a while before we see it because Patty Jenkins is firmly scheduled for Rogue Squadron to be out in December of 2022, was it?
1: I don't remember at that point.
0: It's either 2022 or 2023. So that has to be her next project. She needs to be on the case for that. And then anything else is going to have to fall after that.
1: Well, let's hope. But after this, do you think that the project could get shelved a little bit longer for the political controversy from this film?
0: Um, I don't know if there's a big enough hue and cry about the politics of this movie or the possible politics of this movie for people to second-guess the next thing or two things down the road for them.
1: Mm -hmm. I will say, if you are not paying attention to the politics of this film or if you're not worried about the consensual part of it and you're just watching it to watch it I think this is a great movie um the opening sequence of the uh, Themyscirian Olympics is beautiful Mm -hmm. um it's a lot of fun and I do think it is a better Wonder Woman film than the first one
0: I kind of found the whole film a little bit muddled at times um, a little bit unfocused I enjoyed some sequences definitely but I didn't find it as good a film as the first Wonder Woman. I
1: don't think it is a better film. I think it is a better Wonder Woman story.
0: And you might have something there. Although I would throw in the caveat that it might be a better Wonder Woman story. It might not have been told as well. And we will agree to disagree for the rest of this. Very well. Okay. And I think, though, that about wraps us up this week.
1: Remember, you can find us online at bigpicturepod.com. We are now available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So either use the link in the show notes post or head directly there, search and hit subscribe.
0: And if you like what you're hearing, leave a positive review because that always helps us connect with new listeners. We'll be back next time with more news analysis and a look back at some of the best television and film of 2020.
1: And that's all right here on the Big Picture Podcast. The world is waiting for you
0: and the power you possess in your satin tights fighting for your rights and the old red white and blue